the latest episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is why some firms are outperformers, an exclusive deep dive into the 2020 Schwab RIA benchmarking study. It's a conversation with Lisa Salvi, Vice President of Business Consulting and Education of Schwab Advisor Services. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you are not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page on our website. And if you find the content in this series to be useful and know others who could benefit from it, please certainly feel free to share it widely. In an industry driven by numbers, there's an unquenchable interest around data and key performance indicators. While the data gathered has greater significance to the industry as a whole, for an advisor or firm owner, studies that analyze peer performance provide benchmarks to help guide their strategic paths as well as their position relative to others in the space. While there are several studies that are frequently referenced in the industry, one of the most well-respected is the Schwab RIA benchmarking study. The 2020 study represented 1,010 advisory firms that custody with Schwab and represents some $1.1 trillion in assets under management. This represents nearly a quarter of the assets in the RIA space as a whole, which is reportedly $4.8 trillion, according to Cerulli data. The results are intended to help advisors align with their business plans, to track progress against their strategic goals, and identify opportunities for improvement. Yet its value goes well beyond It serves as a guide to the overall health of the independent space with both a broader view and keen insight into growth and trends. And then it digs deeper into the behaviors of firms that are the outperformers, those highest ranking in assets and revenue, such as key drivers of assets, priority focus areas, organic growth, M&A, technology, marketing, compensation, and talent. All that said, I'm excited to have Lisa Salvi, Vice President of Business Consulting and Education at Schwab Advisor Services on the show today for an exclusive deep dive into the data and findings from the recently released 2020 Schwab RIA benchmarking study. It's a level of information and access that's typically only shared in part or amongst Schwab advisors. And there's no one better to talk about the study as Lisa leads the team that conducts not only the annual RIA benchmarking study, but also the compensation study and programs that support the development of advisor talent through executive education and student initiatives. So I'm excited to have her on to share the results of the 14th annual study, as well as her guidance on the real value of this data to advisors. So let's jump right in. Lisa, thank you so much for making the time for me today. 
Mindy, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you right now. Great. Well, there's lots to unpack here in this episode. So let's start at the beginning. Just tell us a little bit about yourself, if you would, what your background is. Yeah, so I've worked in this industry for a really long time. I actually started many, many years ago at an RAA, an independent broker dealer. And that's where I kind of fell in love with this business. I loved seeing how some firms just totally outperformed. And that became really fascinating to me. Some did okay, and some just had these stellar results. And over the years, that kind of became a central question for me in my career. How do those firms outperform? What are they doing? What's the magic there? And fast forward to today, I've been at Schwab for 14 years working in advisor services with independent advisory firms. And I lead our business consulting and education team where that is what we try to unpack. How do firms outperform? How can you position yourself for success? Whatever your definition of success really is. And we just have such a unique opportunity to help firms reach that next level, to grow, to launch in many cases. And to succeed. So that's kind of what's powered me throughout every single job I've had in this career. Yeah, well, it's a great job and incredible knowledge. So I want to come back to that because that's really the key to this episode. But let's just give our listeners some perspective. So you'd be hard pressed to find anyone who doesn't recognize the Schwab name. But can you share with us a bit about the role Schwab plays in the RIA space? Yeah, so Schwab is the leading custodian in the RA industry. So um, in my side of the business and advisor services, we're the custodian. So we do all those things you would normally think of, like trading and having outstanding service teams and a really robust product offering. You know, our service teams sometimes feel almost like an extension of the firm's back office. But my area is consulting. So we really are focused on helping firms outperform, helping them prepare for the future, helping them with their cybersecurity program or leadership development within the firm. And, you know, we like to joke that we think we just have the best job because we get to sit down with firms and firm leaders or people even thinking about becoming an independent firm and uncover what's important to them. What is their unique vision of the future? And how can we deploy our thought leadership, our team, our consulting programs, our resources to help them reach those goals? And it's incredibly rewarding to see firms that go from, you know, just an idea in the back of your head to incredible levels of success that far surpass what they ever thought they could achieve. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting comment because even just in the past decade, the role of the custodian has evolved, going from just a trading partner or a place to park safe asset custody to really powering a firm, being a real partner in a firm's success. And I think that's a good pivot point to the benchmarking study itself. So the 2020 study was Schwab's 14th one. What was the genesis of it? So we started the benchmarking study, I can't believe it's been 14 years, but 14 years ago, because when you're running a firm, it's hard to know how you're really performing. There's a lot of success in this industry, but it's hard to see, okay, well, what are other firms doing? Is my pricing consistent? How's my product offering compared to peers? How am I really doing across a multitude of key performance indicators? Beyond that, Firms are growing very quickly. This is definitely the success story in the industry. And when you're dealing with those levels of growth, it's a blessing, but you also have to be able to um, know today what to prepare for because that growth is generating so quickly. So we launched the benchmarking study to give firms that broader view into the industry. 
first and foremost, we do it so that participating firms get a wealth of information back. But over time, it also really helped inform our strategy. So we could see what firms were telling us was really important to them and then build programs and consulting engagements and other things that will help step-by-step take them through those topics. So an example of that would be um, like cybersecurity that's really emerged over the last few years as a huge part of our offering, such an important issue in this industry and an area where we can help firms tremendously. And then you have your other more traditional ideas like just preparing for growth and for the future. So from your perspective, let's start with a broad context. Tell us about the state of the RIA space at the start of 2020. And I guess what I'm looking, what I'm wondering is were RIAs starting from a position of strength or weakness? Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, none of us could have predicted what a challenging year 2020 would have been. And it's very fortunate that advisory firms were really coming into the year from a position of so much strength. When we look at the study we get trend lines, which are really interesting. So five years ago, the median firm in our study had an AUM of 221 million, about 218 clients and around 2 million in revenue. At the end of last year, so over a five-year period, that median firm had grown from 221 million in AUM to 458 million in AUM, 278 client relationships and 2.6 million in AUM. That is a lot of change over a five-year period. That is a lot of growth and a lot of success. And if that was to continue, if that same AUM CAGR continued for another five years, the median firm would be at 700, over 700 million in AUM. So really coming into such a challenging year with a lot of growth and a model that just really resonates. What I love about working with advisors is how much they care about the client experience and No matter if you're working from your office or if you were working from home, they played such a crucial role that is so appreciated in the way they're able to communicate very quickly with their clients, help them through these challenging times. And that model really resonates. And something I I look at often is what we tend to see in periods of challenge is that the RA experience that they offer their clients their clients end up telling their friends about it. And we see a lot of growth come out of it. That happened during the last downturn. And I fully expect that to happen again, coming out of this rather challenging 2020 cycle. So Lisa, you're right. That's a tremendous increase in the average size. So I agree with you just based upon the advisors I've interviewed for this podcast. All of them said that they felt that they were best positioned to deal with the challenges of 2020 by being an RIA. But what do you think, other than the challenge of COVID and the positioning of an RIA, what are the specific things that you think were responsible for driving that increase in average size? I mean, the model absolutely resonates, that commitment to wowing your client. But what, what I love is to go back to the data, right? So when I go back to the benchmarking data and we try to unpack what helps firms just completely outperform, I just gave you the median numbers. The top performing firms in our study are growing at an 18% AUM CAGR. So that's twice the median firm. And we did a project this past few years with our data scientists to really take a look at this whole ecosystem of data that we get from benchmarking. It's a huge amount of variables involved. And we wanted to isolate the ones that are going to matter the most. So we isolated 15 metrics on things like you would expect, like growth and growth in clients and revenue, client and staff attrition, operating margin, all of those really great firm metrics. 
But what was really fascinating to me is we also isolated some of the behaviors that firms adopt that leads them to outperform. So we launched this firm performance index with looking across all 1,000 plus firms who participate in our study, and that represents over a trillion dollars in assets under management. And the top 20% of firms, we call our top performing firms, and they are just outperforming on every metric you could think of. And I can highlight some of the things they're doing that leads to this tremendous growth. And it's things like having a written strategic plan, knowing exactly who your ideal client is, having a documented client value proposition, and adoption of digital touch points. Those are some of the behaviors these firms incorporate into the way they run their firm that leads to just tremendous outperformance. And that's across firms of absolutely all sizes. And that's also firms that could have been in business for you know 30 plus years, or they could be really new. So I think that's just really interesting that firms who have these great levels of success, they can be brand new, they can be well tenured, and they can be. Yeah, you know, we talk a lot about building a firm with the end in mind. So episodes like this are incredibly helpful for our listeners, many of whom are would-be or prospective breakaways to hear, okay, so if I'm going to go independent, what are the kind of things I should be thinking of or the initiatives, the strategic initiatives to put in place in order to be like those top performing firms? And that's one of my favorite things is talking to firms like you just described or, or advisors like you just described, because there's so much opportunity We have a process we like to go through and we kind of think of it as discover, plan, launch. And in discover, it's about unpacking what's important. What are you trying to build? What do you want to deliver to your end clients and to your employees and to yourself as you build this firm? And I'm just reminded right now as I talk to you, Mindy, of a a really lovely event I was at a few years ago back when we were doing in-person things. And I was at a table of, you know, five or six advisors And I was sitting across from a husband and wife, and they had just recently made that really tough decision to go independent. And they were describing to me that process of building a business from your kitchen table, right? After work, at the end of the day, really thinking it through, is this something we want to do? And they worked with some of our um, consulting teams and said it was so helpful to not just be completely alone because we had ideas, but we needed to get a designed together. And we didn't always know like exactly what to ask. And having someone who's done this thousands of times guiding us through a process and it's grounded in real data or benchmarking data helped them have that confidence that what they were building could come to life. And then we fast forward to this beautiful dinner. This firm's over a billion dollars very rapidly. Mm-hmm. And you know, I love hearing those stories because it surpasses often what they thought it would be when they were sitting at the kitchen table. And it's not easy. It's a lot of work to do these things, but the rewards are so incredible. And I, I don't know that I've ever really talked to someone, I'm, I'm curious if you have, that doesn't say, I'm so glad I did it. And I wish I did it sooner. I, know, like, I, I was just going to say that <laughs> the one complaint is, boy, I wish I did it sooner. But you know, that's a good pivot point too. So what do you think the priority focus is for RIAs like the one you just described that have grown to become billion dollar plus firms? I will go back to some of the basics because they are so important. So One, having a vision of what you're trying to build. You just said build your firm with the end in mind. I think that's so important. We don't want to just help you launch a firm. We want to help you reach your long-term goals. So thinking things through like, who is my ideal client? Uh, What is my ideal client persona? Firms who do this really well 
have incredible results. So when they know who that ideal client persona is, and when I say that, I mean something really specific. I mean, you've thought through the demographic attributes, the psychographic attributes, the firms that do it the best name their ideal client. Every single person knows exactly who that is within the firm. Um, The firms that have a documented ideal client persona and client value proposition get 23% more new clients and 45% more new client assets, which is my favorite data point from benchmarking ever because that's so powerful. And when you know, I am building this business for this type of client, you can make every decision so much better. Um, I'll give you one example that I just absolutely love. It's a firm. I'm in San Francisco. So this firm's in um, Silicon Valley and they went through this exercise and they developed a ideal client persona, the Hamlins, a married couple. Uh, They both work in the tech sector and they have two children and, you know, they know that the children are going to be in college soon. They're in private school now. I mean, the details in the work they did to bring this fictional couple alive is so powerful that you can remember the story. They even named the dog. So they, <laughs> they have a chocolate lab and the dog's name is Murphy. And I still remember this, even though I haven't uh, talked to this firm for quite some time. The reason why that's powerful is they rolled it out to their firm. They put a picture in a picture frame on their employees' desk. So everyone really knows who the Hamlins are. That's who they're building their business for. Um, They were able to take this lens of what would the Hamlins want. And that's the leading leadership thing you would hear anytime they're making a decision. If it's If it's a technology to deploy, would the Hamlins like it? Would it help them more? If it's a marketing strategy, is this going to reach more people like the Hamlins? And that laser focus is incredible, not only for making good decisions. This particular firm figured out that the Hamlins have a high likelihood of also speaking a second language. So one of the things they added as they were hiring is someone else who speaks that language within the business, which unlocked more uh, new client opportunities. So rather than just saying, I'm going to add this service or this offering or do this marketing strategy or add this technology, they're looking at it through this laser focus. And that particular firm um, did just such a stellar job with it not only could their employees tell great stories that will resonate for the Hamlins, but so could their centers of influence. And even though it's been this virtual environment for many years, the firm uh, sent one of our consultants a note saying, I had 12 prospect meetings that were sent to me and I'm getting emails from my centers of influence with the subject line, I have another Hamlin client for you. I just think that's so powerful, right? Like that's the dream. And that's what supercharges all of your your efforts with your firm and makes all of your decisions more crystallized. So that is just, you know, there's such a powerful thing to do. I love that story, Lisa. It is enormously powerful. And it's a lesson, not just for an advisor who's thinking about building his own firm, but I love that. I think all the time about, you know, with them, what's in it for me, that whoever I am talking to, every single thing I say and do needs to demonstrate or add value for that listener or that recipient. And if it doesn't, then I'm doing or saying the wrong thing. And I think what you just described is that story on steroids. But I guess what I'm wondering, so you mentioned the importance of not only knowing who the target client is, in this case, the Hamlins, but also what is the, you know, knowing what your value proposition is. So, and I may be putting you on your spot, but do you recall what the specific value proposition is that they built around the Hamlins? I I couldn't do it justice off the top of my head, but it was very focused on the unique aspects of having 
a dual career in Silicon Valley, and they also ended up really focusing on the unique dynamics around just real estate in this area where, you know, starter homes can be incredibly expensive. And they actually had some great strategies around that. It's in their value proposition. They brought in people to do webcasts and webinars on real estate in the Bay Area and also for second homes in the Tahoe area, which is a big thing around here. And they started getting a lot of referrals from real estate of people who had, you know, inherited their parents' home in Silicon Valley for $2 million or something like that. And they're like sitting there going, I don't know if I should keep this. Should I sell it? The firm was able to come in and help in those regards and actually won over almost all of those clients in terms of new business because they saw the value in the specialization. So don't be, I think that's the lesson, right? Don't be afraid to get more specific because it's going to resonate with the exact types of clients that will love working with your firm, but also you're going to get so much out of working with those, those clients as well. Yeah. So I took you off. We were talking about what are the other focus areas then for RIAs that have grown to a billion dollars or more? So the other one that we have to talk about is having a strategic plan. And by that, I mean, it's written down. You have purpose, values, vision. You've done a SWOT analysis. You have long-term goals and short-term goals. 75% of those top performing firms that I was talking about earlier, the ones that just totally outperform, have a written strategic plan. And the billion plus firms in particular are so fascinating right now with the way they're approaching this, Mindy. I'm seeing such great things in terms of assigning a junior partner or a partner to every single goal or strategic priority. We like firms to have three to five so that they stay focused. What I love seeing right now at a lot of these larger firms, and it's something any firm can do, is as they develop their future partners, they're assigning a junior partner to a goal as a stretch assignment to see how they can do beyond just their technical day job. And can they start leading the firm to the future? They usually have a mentor of someone a little more senior within the firm that will help them, but it really gives them a practice run at leading a strategic initiative that's important, whether it's a new technology deployment or a new strategy for business growth, or, you know, in some cases, a lot of firms are focusing on their website and making sure that's really doing, serving their purposes in the best way possible. I love seeing that. And I'm seeing more and more firms also start linking their incentive compensation to the goals in their strategic plan. It's crystal clear. You have your individual goals, you have your team goals, and you have your firm-based goals. And then they kind of bring that into just the way they talk to their firm and their firm staff on an ongoing basis. And it it really makes that strategic plan as powerful as it can be in terms of driving true alignment, getting focused on the things that are really going to matter, and developing that leadership talent within the firm. Yeah, very powerful. And I, I think the word alignment is a good one for sure. Is there anything else, Lisa? Uh, digital touch points too. So firms that are outperforming, we did a little focus section in benchmarking last year and ended up being a great one to focus on given the year. We were focused on the client experience and we asked what types of digital touch points firms have. Firms that were outperforming across the board on every digital touch point were more likely to adopt. So digital forms, texting, virtual meetings, they were much more likely to have those things, which I think really put them into a good position going into 2020. I would expect to see that continue to grow. I think there's just been 
a shift in our industry and really the world with the way we do business that's here to stay. And the great thing about independence is you can pivot pretty quickly when those changes happen and make the decisions you feel like are best for your client base. I think that's the key is the ability to pivot quickly. So when in March, when we went through a shutdown and the pandemic first hit and the world was upside down and people were scared, the reason the RIAs felt that they were so well positioned for this or better positioned perhaps than their big brokerage firm counterparts was the ability to just quickly get the information out and in whatever form they felt was the best way to communicate it by video, by podcast, by webinar, by email, by text, by whatever it was. I couldn't agree more. That's exactly it. And I saw so many interesting things with the way firms approached it. Like video is so fascinating. I'm so glad you just said that. I've seen firms, you know, record videos, like here's a tour of my office. I know you can't come to it right now, but I want you to see what it would be like. And I've seen firms use video to flip the way they work with their clients. So one of my favorite ways I've seen that happen this past year is you know, a lot of advisors made their meetings with their clients a little shorter because it's, everyone's getting this, you know, Zoom fatigue. <laughs> but they would have a junior partner record the portfolio review portion about a week ahead of the meeting, and they would send it through their portal. So it's very secure to their clients to get the really technical review of the portfolio from the junior advisor and then save the time when they're on the Zoom call to answer questions and to connect at a deeper level. And I just love that so much because it's such a great way to develop your team members. They can just re-record the video if it's not right, but it also just lets you connect with your clients. And so I think the innovation I've seen across the industry as we've all adjusted to 2020, like you just said, is pretty phenomenal. And the rapidity of that change was pretty impressive as we went through the year. And I'm still seeing new things all the time. Yeah, I think that's the key. I think that all the changes were things that probably would have happened. They just got accelerated, which is cool that people were able to do it. But let me ask you another question. So what does the data show about some of the key drivers of new firm assets? Everybody's looking to grow their firm organically. Yeah. So when I look at the data on that specific point, the top performing firms outperform all other firms by two times. And you can unpack that. There's three main areas of growth for advisory firms. Client referrals continue to be the biggest. Center of influence referrals, so trusted other professionals in the industry like a CPA or you know even that real estate agent I was talking about earlier. And then just all other marketing tactics. And the firms that outperform do way better on all three of those dimensions. The secret is focusing on that ideal client, figuring out where do they want to consume information, what's going to resonate for them. And I'm a really big believer in the power of storytelling. So telling a story to your ideal clients that they're going to remember and want to repeat. When you look at websites and what makes websites successful, the top pages people go to are the bio and the about the firm. And so a great place to start when you think about storytelling is what's your origin story? Why did you create your firm and who did you create it for? And what's a great example of something you helped your clients do? And, you know, there's all sorts of fascinating science on storytelling and how it lights up your brain from a neuroscience perspective in different ways. People remember stories. They repeat stories. And other people are more likely to act on a story than they are if you're just listing a whole page of what your offer is or the types of investments you do. So I think 
focusing on storytelling and flowing that through all of your conversations and your, you know, use the digital microphone of website and any other tactic that makes sense for your ideal clients and where they want to consume information. Yeah, I like that. The origin story, because I think it's about authenticity. I think people, they may be impressed by your investment acumen, but they will stay with you because they trust you. They like you. They find you authentic and relatable. And that's where that origin story, I think, really connects the dots. Lisa, what about things firms are doing to deepen their value propositions, the kind of things that they're doing to really optimize their client experiences? There's definitely a five-year trend of firms adding more services. So whether that's charitable giving or financial planning or family education, across the board, firms are offering more services. They're tending to offer more services for the same price point. So that can kind of show up and feel like margin compression a little bit. I like to really advise firms not to get too caught up in just offering more services and to take that step back and go, well, what's really going to resonate for my ideal clients? You know, So if it's hiring someone who speaks another language that's going to help you unlock a whole new population of ideal clients, that's probably a better bet than adding one more new service. So really looking at that strategically makes a lot of sense. Some firms are adding things like financial counseling or estate planning is definitely something that's also on the rise lately with people just being very focused on having everything buttoned up. From my vantage point, I think one of the most popular kind of RIA firms are the multifamily offices, the ones that service the ultra high net worth or high net worth clients and are able to bring some of the services that used to only be available to a billion dollar clients in a family office to more to the masses. So things like trust and estate services, concierge services, bill pay, travel management, those kinds of things. What's your thought about those kind of firms? Like what percentage of the firms under the Schwab umbrella or that participated in this benchmarking study were those kind of firms, the multifamily offices? Yeah, we definitely have quite a few firms that are multifamily offices. And I think you're right on in terms of the trend. There's more and more firms who are well-established and maybe they have one or two kind of family office types of clients and they're trying to develop that more as a specific offer. And everything you just listed is exactly right. It's how do you think through a value proposition for those really large family relationships? The one I would maybe add to the list that I see a lot of conversation around is family education and just helping the younger generations that are in those fortunate positions to be in that family office type of environment understand how to handle wealth or think about it for the future in a responsible way. Mm -hmm. So if you go back to that example of the RIA firm that was building around the target client, the Hamlins, you mentioned one that they hired a multilingual speaker on the staff because they assumed that a lot of their target clients would in fact, you know, speak multiple languages. Do you recall what else, like what other sorts of things that they do to beef up their value proposition? I think the other one that they got the biggest return from was the specialization and the unique attributes of real estate in the Bay Area. And that led to a lot of new business because real estate brokers were referring people who had inherited real estate to the firm to have a consultation about their options and what would be the best thing. Is it, you know, keep it, rent it, sell it? 
um, how do they think about those things? Uh, not only did they do that, but then they kind of doubled down and they had a series of webinars and other things to help people just think through their options. This firm also realized that a lot of their clients had concentrated stock positions or options because they were in the tech industry and did a lot of education around those aspects, which can really be a very powerful strategy to deploy because other people that your clients work with within their firms often have those same questions. Another firm I was talking to in the Bay Area similarly realized the executive compensation component was so important. They noticed that they were getting a lot of calls around, you know, I just got offered a package. I'm in a Fortune 500 company. This is 10 years earlier than I thought I would retire. What should I do? And I love that that firm did some pretty targeted paid search. So anytime someone in their market would search can I retire early? Should I take a package? Their firm came up and they just started generating a great deal of business through those things. So I think it's being laser focused on who you're trying to serve, noticing the trends or the questions you're starting to get, and then having a strategy to communicate with those clients virtually or not, that really leads to a pretty tremendous result. And so it sounds like what you're saying is that the specialists do better than the generalists. What does the benchmarking study show about somebody that runs a more generalist practice? Yes, yeah, so the firms that do have that ideal client persona and build for that outperform in terms of new assets and new client relationships. I think it can make people a little nervous, right? When you say build your business for this one type of client and be really thoughtful when you're taking a client that doesn't fit that mold. But what we like to tell people is think of it as like a target and you don't have to always hit the bullseye. You should be somewhere on that target uh, board if you're taking the client on. And when you're a newer firm, so if you're just launching, like we were talking about earlier, and you're brand new, and you have a lot of capacity, you can take on more types of clients. You don't have to always turn people away, which that sounds a little scary for some firms when they're building in that growth mode, those early days. But you should be really thoughtful. And if you're going to take on a client that wants something so specific and unique that it's totally outside of what you're designed to do, like very bond heavy or just, you know, lots of options or just something that's going to take a whole lot of time to serve. Be really thoughtful about it because that's going to take time and energy. And you want to always be creating clients that are going to recommend you because they've had a great experience working with your firm. So, uh, you know, it's okay to take on other, other types of relationships, but just be very thoughtful about it when it's happening. Yeah. I think, you know, it's scary to think about, especially when you're in building mode, you know, it's one thing sort of when you have arrived and you're already at a billion or 5 billion, it's easier at that point to say, okay, I'm going to turn away anybody that doesn't fit X. But when you're first building a firm, um, it's scary to turn down potential business. Absolutely. And you have a lot of capacity to take on business. You're not hitting any of those constraints yet in terms of time or how many clients you can service without hiring that next person. We really like to sit down with people who are thinking about going independent and do a firm design. So lead them through, you know, five key areas, some of the ones we've talked, or more than five, but lead them through the key areas to think about in terms of who are your desired clients, what's your product mix, what's the age of your clients, um, what kind of marketing strategy do you want, what kind of real estate, and just kind of get that down in writing and help them think through, what am I trying to build? Do an economic analysis, which you can do on your own, or we have tools that could help in that scenario. Understand the economics 
of building a firm and really building an asset as you go into the future. And then we can help firms take those things and look at the providers and ecosystem. There's never been a better time in our industry when I look around at all these incredible offers that are designed for independent advisors. And the exciting thing about thinking about going independent is you can pick the best of the best and we can help you figure out what that means for you and what you're trying to build. But there's such an incredible ecosystem that didn't exist when I started in this industry. It's pretty amazing what's grown up to support independent advisors. (laughs) That is exactly right. Lisa, you know, we haven't talked about recruiting talent and M&A. What do the benchmark studies show about firms that are growing through M&A? How important is M&A or inorganic growth to getting to a billion or getting from a billion to five billion? Uh, that's such the hot topic question these days, right? There's definitely more focus on M&A than ever before. I like to tell firms, you've got to focus on your organic growth. That's a non-negotiable. You, you should know what your organic growth rate is. And by that, I mean, you've stripped out market performance. You know how well your client proposition is really resonating in the marketplace? Are you making good leadership decisions? So have some strong organic growth, really think thoughtfully about M&A, whether that's bringing an advisor on with a book of business, which can work out really well on both sides when it's done well. It's a great opportunity for someone who doesn't want to go fully independent. Or if it's doing a traditional acquisition, what we've seen is I believe it's about 18% of firms have done an acquisition of some type in the last five years. So you know, almost one out of five firms doing some sort of acquisition, whether it's on the firm level or an advisor with a book of business. It does help. And I think it can be done really well. And I would say almost some of the same things we've been talking about, Mindy, like being clear on what you're trying to do, what you're reasons are for bringing on that advisor, what that's going to look like from a compensation perspective. Is there equity involved or is there not? Just all of those things are important to think through to set it up for success. There's no wrong answers. It's just being really clear on what you're trying to accomplish. So what percentage would you say approximately of the top, top firms have added inorganic growth to organic growth that engage in inorganic growth? It's more common the larger a firm gets that they've engaged in in organic growth. And we'll be releasing some numbers pretty soon here on uh, the trends, but we definitely saw over the past year a resurgence in lots of activity, lots of deals happening. It's it's amazing to see what's happening across the industry. Yeah. And I actually think that COVID has increased that because I think a lot of one-man bands or people that had small firms that realized were more of a practice than a business got faced with the notion, okay, I'm at a crossroads. Do I invest in my business or do I look to sell or merge or be acquired as a way of filling the gaps? And I think many of them sort of realized they were kind of tired of this environment kind of was challenging and wore a lot of people out and really accelerated the trend. Absolutely. It's kind of the same thing we saw with more estate planning on the client side. I think asking those questions as a leader, well, what do I want? What's my plan for the future? How am I going to make sure my clients continue to be well served? That's definitely a responsible question to ask and one that this environment brought to the surface much more so. Yeah. Okay. Just a couple more questions, Lisa. The truth is this is incredibly fascinating and I could go on all day, but what are the kind of things that firms are doing to attract new clients, particularly in a virtual environment? And, you know, look, we record this in month, who knows how many of COVID, I think it's month 10 of the pandemic, 
But we certainly hope that sometime soon we will go back to a less virtual world. But I think everyone agrees that one of the things that COVID or the pandemic really accelerated was people connecting more virtually. So what are some of the interesting things people are doing to either attract new clients or to nurture relationships in a virtual environment? Yeah, that's such a good question. I think the firms that have done a really good job are the ones that had that innovative mindset. And they were really willing to try different things pretty quickly and not just kind of get paralyzed and say, oh, I'm just going to wait for this whole thing to blow over. Because the new normal is going to involve more digital touch points across the board. I get this question a lot. And the one place I would say you have to start is with your website because that is the new front door to your business. And these general websites that all sound sort of the same and you know have a lighthouse or a sailboat or something on them, if that's not really going to say something specific to those types of clients that you're building your business for, it's a really good opportunity to take another look at it. And it doesn't mean you have to redesign everything, but get at least a really good origin story on there that says something interesting and unique. Make sure your bios of your employees tells an actual story and isn't just like a list of resume type of accomplishments. And think about adding some simple things to your website. Some videos can be done really well in a very low cost way that can feature your office, one of the firms that's had a lot of luck with their prospecting activities, just took on their iPhone a video of walking around the office. And they actually had the receptionist there that day, pretending to play the role of each person within the firm. And it it was just kind of funny and simple and low cost. But it showcased for firms that or for prospects who might be a little hesitant to create a new relationship without really meeting in person. This was really in the heart of the pandemic, the people and what the office is like and make them feel like they've had that experience. So I think there's some really interesting things you can do. They don't have to cost a lot. They don't have to be overly sophisticated, but they can change things. I would say beyond that, be thoughtful about all those other touch points. You don't have to launch 50 new strategies because we're digital, but think thoughtfully about what do my clients care about right now? What do they need to hear from me? What else can I do to add value through this time? And then some firms have been pretty creative with their approach to like client appreciation events, virtual wine tastings, virtual cocktail making. I've seen trivia nights, just some interesting, oh, cooking demonstrations, some just interesting things that they've done just to kind of create a little levity and have those touch points with their clients and, you know, even let their clients invite someone they know. Okay, lightning round. Two last questions. Based upon the data from the benchmarking study, what would be the one best piece of advice, the one best practice you would offer to a business owner? So let's say it's an RIA managing $700 million in assets in business a number of years. Obviously, the immediate goal is to get to a billion, and the midterm goal is to get to three and five billion. What's the one best practice you'd share with that firm? Without knowing anything about else about that firm, if they have not revisited their strategic planning process, that is where you have got to start because we've been in such a reactive mode I have not seen anyone who had a 2020 strategic plan that had you know, a mention of prepare for a global pandemic and social unrest and all this crazy stuff that got handed our way. It pushed most businesses to a reactive mode 
for a large part of the year, I am seeing a lot of back to the basics on strategic planning, getting the leadership team together, often virtually to sit down to drive true alignment around what are we going to accomplish and what are our priorities for 2021. I don't think you can skip a step like that. That's so important. And the number of firms that we see do this and they set five-year goals and then come back to us three years later because they've reached all their five-year goals. It's pretty tremendous and powerful. I'm a really big believer in that. And I think in times where there's been so much challenge, you got to get back to those basics. Back to the basics. Yeah. And the one other thing I'll say is purpose, values, vision, that matters to firms and to employees. And that's one of the ways to keep your firm culturally strong is to refocus on those things and communicate on those dimensions. Yeah, love it. Okay, last lightning round question. So what would be the one best practice or the best message to a prospective breakaway? So this is an advisor that is an employee at a brokerage firm and thinking about going independent. What's the one piece or the best practice based upon the data that you'd share with them? I think this is often something that's in the back of people's minds for many years before they take any action. And I would just encourage them to think about talking to someone in the industry who has done it, or even teams like we have at Schwab that will help you think through, what am I trying to design? What do I want it to be? What do the economics look like? So you can really demystify the trade-offs. And once you start to go through that process, advisors will find that they know a lot of the answers because they've been thinking about it for such a long time. But there's other places where they haven't thought about it at all. We help guide them through that process. It's exciting. I think once you go through this and you see, wow, I really could build this thing that I've been thinking about in the back of my mind for a long time. It's pretty compelling. It's almost irresistible to not do it. Mm, Love it. Lisa, thank you so much. I hope that you'll agree to visit us again as you begin to gather more relevant information, whether it be next year's benchmarking study results or you said compensation study or anything of the sort. I really thank you for your transparency and your graciousness in sharing it all. Thank you so much, Mindy. I loved the conversation. I would love to come back. I could talk to you all day long about this stuff. So thank you. The best independent firms in the industry don't get that way by accident. As Lisa described in the Schwab study reveals, it's all about strategic planning, laser focus, and building a firm with the end in mind. I thank you for listening, and I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. These written pieces are an ideal way to stay informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration requires. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 973-476-8578 or by email at mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence. Independence.